This is Anchored in Christ, the sermon podcast that gives you hope in the gospel as an anchor for your soul. Brought to you from Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. Our second reading of scripture is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, and I'd encourage you to take out your Bible if you didn't bring a Bible and follow along as we read. We're going to be referring to the text uh, today, so if you have that there before you, uh, it will be helpful. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in heaven and on earth. In Christ, we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we who were the first to set our hope on Christ might live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you, have heard, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance towards redemption as God's own people, to the praise of his glory. Let's bow for prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this word you give to us. We pray that you would open our hearts and our minds for what you have for us, guide and direct our thoughts. And so we just uh, pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the first time I preach with a mask on. Can you hear me okay? Again, it sounds like a commercial, I know, but uh, can you hear me now? Uh, I tried actually preaching, started when I was home, tried, tried it with a KN95 mask, and I noticed about after two minutes I couldn't breathe, and I thought, well, that'd be a short sermon. Um, so I switched to, to one of these masks, but thank you for wearing your mask today and uh, keeping everyone safe. And I need to say uh, Happy New Year, too. I forgot to say that earlier on. So here it is. Happy New Year uh, to you and to all of us as we begin this new year. Uh, this morning, we are beginning a new sermon series from the New Testament book of Ephesians, a series we are calling Whole Living in a Broken World. And we are giving this particular series of messages this title because in this letter, we get a clear and concise summary of the gospel, the good news, and its practical implications for how we are to live 
in this world. John Stott, who was a respected author and pastor and teacher, once described the book of Ephesians in this way. He said, the whole book of Ephesians is a magnificent combination of Christian doctrine and Christian duty, Christian faith and Christian life, what God has done in Christ, and what we must do in consequence. Ephesians is such a rich book. As I was going through it again, looking at it, I'm thinking, oh, this is really, there's just a lot here. And it has a lot to say about what it means for us to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus. It also has a lot to say about what it means for us to be the church, and we're going to be talking about that, and how we are to live in a culture that seems to be increasingly hostile, or at least very indifferent to the gospel, a culture in a world that's hurting and broken, it seems, in so many ways and in so many places. So I think Ephesians hopefully will be a good place for us to spend a little time, bit of time for us to dwell a little bit uh, in the next couple months. Uh, although there has been some question about who wrote Ephesians, most scholars believe that it was indeed the Apostle Paul. Certainly the letter itself indicates in several places that Paul was the author. Ephesians was probably written by Paul while he was in prison. Actually, more likely he was under house arrest in Rome. And he mentions this house arrest or this imprisonment in chapter 3, verse, verse 1. And this letter to the Ephesians is one of several letters that Paul wrote that are called his prison letters, his, his prison epistles that were written while he was in this confined state. And even though the biblical text uh, says it is addressed to believers in Ephesus in verse 1, some of the earliest manuscripts we have of the New Testament do not include in Ephesus in them. So many believe that this letter was probably not written specifically to the Christians in Ephesus, although they would have been beneficiaries of it, but was more sort of a widely circulated, circular letter that Paul meant to be read in many churches. Paul, you'll notice here that Paul begins by referring to the Christians he writes to as the saints who are faithful in Jesus Christ in verse 1. The word saints here literally means holy or set apart. When Paul uses the word saints here and elsewhere in this letter and in other places, what he has in mind is not a small select group of super Christians, canonized saints, as you will find in some uh, religious traditions where people become saints. No, Paul is referring to all God's people. Saints refers to you and to me and everyone who believes in Jesus. Everyone who has been set apart by faith and are seeking to live a life that is holy and pleasing before the Lord. One thing Paul says about these saints, he says a lot of things, but one thing he says about the saints in verse 3 is that we have received many blessings, many blessings. You will notice that three times in verse 3, Paul uses the word blessing or blessed. And every blessing we have, every blessing we have received, Paul says, comes to us in and through one person. And that is Jesus Christ. That's always the right answer, you know, almost. <laughs> I, you know, I used to do children's messages all the time, and almost always the right answer was Jesus Christ. You know? So if you say that, you're most likely going to be right, and uh, for good reason. 
What's interesting here is that Jesus is mentioned, I counted them yesterday. I might have, hopefully my math was good, but I noticed that Jesus is mentioned about 15 times in these first 14 verses. Paul says that by being in Christ, by being in him, we have been blessed. Now, what are some of these blessings that we have received in Christ? Well, I'm glad you're asking that question. There are several blessings Paul mentions here. And again, we don't have time to go into any depth. We could spend the whole time just on one verse, let alone a bunch of verses. But this morning, um, I want to touch upon three blessings that Paul says we receive through Christ. First of all, Paul says that one of the blessings we have received is that we have been chosen by God. Look again at verse 4. Paul says that God, here he says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. This word translated chosen here literally means handpicked. It means marked out beforehand. It refers to something that has been marked out or laid out or planned out or decided in advance, like a path or a trail or a road. Debbie's brother Jerry does car rallies uh, on the West Coast. Every four years, he does what is called the Alcan, the Alcan 5000. 5, Anybody heard of the Alcan 5000? Maybe some of you have heard of it. Cars and sometimes motorcycles will drive on a pre-planned route, starting in Seattle, Washington, going through Canada, and then ending usually in Anchorage. Sometimes they'll go up to the top of the state and back to Anchorage, uh, and that's where they end. And generally, it is a distance of about 5,000 miles, one way, one way. And it's not a race so much as it is a timed speed travel kind of event where participants will drive so much each day, and they have to do it in a certain time frame and get to their end point by a certain time. Um, and, when, and whoever drives the whole way and gets to the finish line at the end wins. But it's not just a race like we think of a race, but it's a timed race. You have to go so far each day. And I mention this because Debbie's brother is the rally master who usually marks out, lays out the route or the course that people are going to be driving in beforehand. So he drives from Seattle to Anchorage and literally lays out the, and marks out the exact route, the specific roads, the, the exact distances, everyone on the rally, and usually there's 20 or 30 maybe participants, maybe more, the, the, the exact distances they will be driving each day. And, I, and I, I got to thinking of this because Paul says here that you and I and all who believe in Jesus were actually marked out beforehand, chosen beforehand by God to be in relationship with God even before we were born. Our route towards God, if you will, was already laid out for us by the great grand rally master, God himself. Now, certainly we come to faith, Paul says, when we hear the word of truth and believe in Jesus. He says this in verse 13. 
It's a choice we need to make. It is something we all need to do. But Paul says that our road to salvation actually began long before we ever heard the gospel and believed. Now, unfortunately, we don't have time this morning to go into the particulars of, of how that happens and how we understand that and why God chose us. But suffice it to say that there is nothing we did or have done to deserve this. In verse 5, Paul says that it was done simply because it was God's grace, God's good pleasure, God's good will to do it. When I think about being chosen, I am reminded of what it was like as a kid to be chosen to play on a baseball team. I loved playing baseball when I was a kid, but I wasn't particularly good at it. I mean, I was okay, was decent, but I was not great. And I remember how much I used to dread during recess, having to line up along the fence in the baseball field in order to be chosen for one of the teams. You know how that goes. All the kids stand up against the fence and the two team cap captains, which are always the best baseball players, right? They get to choose the players on their team. And it's a great process if you're a good baseball player and are one of the first ones chosen, right? But if you are not one of the best players, not one of the first ones uh, to get selected, it is really unpleasant, especially the longer it goes on, right? It kind of becomes embarrassing. And you wait and wait to be picked, and the longer it goes on, the more you wish you were somewhere else. <laughs> it's kind of like the old Southwest Airlines commercial. Want to get away? You want to get away sometimes when you're in that situation. But here's the deal. When I was finally chosen, and you have to be chosen at some point. I mean, no one's left on the fence, okay? You've got to get chosen at some point. But when you're finally chosen, it was such a relief to finally get off the fence and have a team you belong to. Now, what you do after that is up to you, but it was nice to be chosen. What Paul says here is that when we are in, we are in Christ, because we were marked out beforehand. We were chosen to be a part of God's family. To use our baseball analogy, even before we learned to play baseball, even before we stepped on the field and lined up against the fence, we had already been chosen to play on God's team through Christ. Before we chose God, he chose us. Not because we were great baseball players, but because he just did. And he didn't choose us last, but first. Again, why, why he did this um, was because of his pleasure and the mystery of his will, verse 7, Paul says. Paul says we are chosen before the foundation of the world to be on God's team for a reason. And that is given to us in verse 4. He says, so that we might be holy and blameless before him in love. It is God's will that you and I and all who are in Christ become like Christ and live for the praise of his glory, verse 12. And the question I think we each need to ask ourselves is simply this. Are we living our lives for the praise of of God's glory, whatever that looks like. 
as God's chosen people, are we seeking to be more Christ-like every day? Can people see that there is something qualitatively different about our words and our actions because we are chosen in Christ? A second blessing, Paul says, we have received, in addition to being chosen by God, is that we have been adopted by him to be his children. Look again at what Paul says in verse 5. He says, he destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ. Through Christ, Paul says, we are chosen and then adopted into God's family. My nephew Ryan and his wife, who run an orphanage in Haiti, have been involved in this orphanage for many years. I've mentioned them before. Um, they are, have either adopted or in the process of adopting seven children. Uh, some of them have already been adopted. They're still in the process of adopting others. Uh, and some of these children are Haitian children. And I was reading about adoption in Reader's Digest magazine this week. And there were a bunch of stories about people who have adopted children and what that experience was like for them and for the children they adopted. And many of these adoption stories that I read describe some of the challenges of adopting children, especially older children, from other countries. And we've been hearing a lot lately about Ukraine uh, in the news. And one th story that caught my attention was about a couple that had that adopted two children from an orphanage in Ukraine. And it took this couple a long time to determine who they wanted to adopt. The children were living in a Ukrainian orphanage full of children that needed homes. And apparently these children were only given a bowl of broth and a piece of bread to eat each day, so they really weren't getting fed very well. It was crowded. After spending many hours and going through countless files, this couple finally somehow settled on two children. Valerie and Timothy. And I don't know if those were names they had before. Probably these are names that they gave them maybe later. But the husband, a guy identified in the article simply as Ken, is quoted as saying this. He says, we just fell in love with the photos of Val and Tim. We kept going back to them and finally said, this is it. This is our family. And as you can guess, these adoptive parents were convinced that the two children uh, were concerned that the two children who apparently had been neglected and abused, you know, they were concerned about how well they would adapt to life in Virginia, which is where this couple is from. Uh, but the adoptive father, Ken, said that the way they dealt with that was by loving them unconditionally and making sure they never forgot it. And he's quoted in the article as saying this. He says, from day one, I would tell them every day that I loved them and I'm thankful for them and they are the best things that ever happened to me. I made sure they know that I appreciate their efforts when they try and that I love them even more when they fail. And most of all, I want them to know that I will be here for them forever. End of quote. What Paul says here is that God has likewise adopted us in Jesus, through Jesus. 
At one time, we too were neglected and abused, if you will, by the power and the pull of sin. But God, through Christ, forgave us and took us in. He made us part of his family. He gave us a new start, a new identity. And the reason was because of his grace and unconditional love. It's as if God looked at you and me and said, this is it. This is my family. Now that we are adopted through Christ, Paul says, we will receive our inheritance as adopted children. He talks about this in verses 11 and 14. But in light of this adoption, the question I think each of us needs to ask ourselves is this. How should knowing that I have been chosen and then adopted into God's family make a difference in how I live? How should knowing that I am loved unconditionally influence how I respond to God, how I think about myself, and how I think about and treat others? A third blessing Paul says we have received, in addition to being chosen by God and adopted into his family, is that we, is that we have also been redeemed by Jesus' sacrifice for us. Look again at verse 7. Paul says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. This word redeemed or redemption literally means to rescue or deliver someone or something. In Paul's day, redemption was the word that was often used to describe the ransoming of a person who was a prisoner of war or a slave. A person would pay a certain price to deliver or rescue another person from a situation in which he or she was powerless to free him or herself. But when I think of being rescued, I was thinking about this week, I was immediately reminded of the rescue of 19-month-old Jessica McClure from an abandoned well in Midland, Texas, 24 years ago in October 1987. Maybe some of you remember that story. It took rescue workers more than 58 hours to drill through solid rock to reach Jessica, who had fallen 22 feet down an 8-inch diameter shaft in her aunt's backyard. Much of America watched the nearly 60-hour rescue live on CNN. People were just captivated by this, if you remember the story. Rescue workers worked around the clock to free her. Frustration marked the rescue attempts as the workers got close enough to touch the child, but not close enough to grab her. And if you, you know, you think of that situation where you're close enough to just touch something you need to grab, but you can't quite get your hands around it, how frustrating that can be. Well, that's what was happening to them for quite a long time. And then finally, a paramedic by the name of Robert O'Donnell was able to coat the shaft with lubricating jelly and pull that toddler free somehow. And after it was all over, her greatly relieved father was quoted as saying this. He said, by the grace of God and some heroic men, we have our baby back. I went online this week to, to get an update on her story and learned that Jessica McClure, who's now, you know, 
a grown lady with a family, actually lives a short distance still from the well she was rescued from all those many years ago. Can you imagine how you would have felt if your toddler fell into and got stuck in a well shaft like that and you could not get to them? And the joy you would feel when she was finally, or he or she was finally rescued. I believe this is how God feels about us when he rescues us from sin through Jesus. Paul says that we owe our very lives not to a team of heroic men, but to one person, one rescuer. And that, again, is Jesus. Through the shedding of his blood on the cross, verse 7, we have been rescued, redeemed, and delivered and forgiven of our sins. It was a rescue that was much more dramatic than the rescue of baby McClure. Paul goes on to say in verses 13 and 14 that another blessing we receive is the Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee or the mark or the seal on us that this rescue, this redemption, this forgiveness that God has begun in us will be brought to its completion someday. This inheritance we will receive. In verse 11 and 14, he uses the word inheritance. Unfortunately, we don't have time this morning to say more about this, but we will uh, later on as we go through Ephesians. But here is the thing. Paul says that we are blessed with all of these many blessings and many more that we really haven't had time to talk about, not only for our sake, but also for the sake of others. We are blessed so that we might be a blessing to our friends and our neighbors and our families and our communities and our world. And we are reminded of this in the Genesis passage we read this morning when God made this clear to Abraham. Abraham was chosen and blessed not only for his sake and for the nation of Israel's sake, but for the sake of the whole world, that the whole world might be blessed through him and through his descendants. Paul says God's ultimate goal is to unite or bring together all things, all people, both heaven and earth. And again, that'll be a theme he'll develop more in this uh, book of Ephesians. And here's the deal. God wants to use us as a part of that great uniting, coming together thing that God is doing in the heavens and on the earth. And I would suggest to you this morning that we also, you and, my, you and I, and we as a church, have also been blessed in many ways so that we too might be a blessing to others through our words and through our actions. We are blessed to be a blessing to a world that seems to be increasingly broken and fractured and desperately in need of some good news, the good news of Jesus. And may God help us to be that. Let's bow for prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your word, which is so rich and deep. We can't even begin to understand or fathom or take in all of the truths. But we pray you'd help us to get a glimpse of your glory, of your love, of your unconditional love for us, of your blessings for us and in us so that we might be a blessing to our world. 
And we pray that today. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. If you'd like more information about our historic church, or you'd like to find out more about the gospel of Jesus, please visit our website at oldsouthnbpt.org. The peace of Christ be with you.